0: Tuesday. Hamburgers. Chapter 9. Ravi. I lay out my math notebook, which Amma and I have carefully covered with brown paper. The label in neat cursive says, Ravi Suryanarayanan, Grade 5, Albert Einstein Elementary School, Mathematics. It is my mother's handwriting. We went to Staples together last week to buy all my school supplies, but she insisted on writing out the labels herself. Even Parima has to admit that Amma's handwriting is beautiful. Your book is the first thing your teacher will notice, Ravi, Amma told me, as she carefully wrote my name on one of the smooth white labels. First impressions matter. Now, sitting at my desk, I run my hand over my math notebook and smile. In India, I was the winner of the Math Olympiad three years in a row. I know all my multiplication tables till 20. Appa is right. There's nothing wrong with showing off a little. I am sure that after this morning, Mrs. Beam will realize what kind of student I really am, and the silly business about Miss Frost and special help will be over. I placed my new pencil box next to the notebook. Ama made sure that every item on the school supplies list was bought. Three mechanical pencils, two erasers, a six-inch ruler, two highlighters, 4 ruled notebooks, and a pack of 3M post-its. I keep looking over at Mrs. Beam, but I don't think that she has noticed yet how well prepared I am. She's busy writing on the whiteboard. In India, we only had blackboards. I loved the soft, scraping noise the chalk made and the smell of the dusty erasers. The desk in front of me is empty. I wonder if Dylan Samarin will be absent today. But at the last minute, he comes rushing into class and takes his seat. I'm glad my new friend is going to be here to witness what's about to happen. I'm sure he will be impressed. Let's do a quick review, Mrs. Beam announces. Easy peasy. I think when I see the math problems, Mrs. Beam has written on the board. Is this what fifth graders in America are doing? I was expecting something much harder, like maybe order of operations or something to do with decimals and fractions. The big guy who sits behind me is groaning and moaning. I turn around to see what's wrong with him and notice his name card for the first time. Joe Sylvester. As I'm reading his name, Joe Sylvester suddenly looks up. I smile, but he doesn't smile back. I can't believe kids in America are allowed to come to school looking like him. In India, we had to wear uniforms with dress pants, a collared shirt, and a tie. Joe Sylvester has on tracksuit pants and an unironed t-shirt. I face front again and straighten my back. Good posture is also on Amma's list of ways to make a good first impression. Joe Sylvester is slouching in his chair. Who would like to come up and show us how to solve the first problem? Mrs. Beam asks the class. I push up my glasses, take a deep breath, and raise my hand. Chapter 10. Joe. Please don't call on me, please don't call on me, please don't call on me, I think. But I can feel Mrs. Beam's head turning my way. I groan. I have a feeling I know where this is heading. I sure hope Miss Frost remembered to tell Mrs. Beam about my APD. Nobody knew anything was wrong with me until I started school. The first week of kindergarten, I spent most of my time hiding in the coat closet with my hands over my ears. My teacher, Mrs. Kane, thought I was homesick, but that wasn't it at all. I didn't want to go home. I just couldn't handle the noise. It turns out I have something called APD, which stands for Auditory Processing Disorder, and means I have trouble listening. I'm not deaf. I can hear just fine. In fact, in a way, the problem is that my hearing is too good, which is why I go to Miss Frost. She gives me exercises to help my ears and my brain agree about what to listen to and what to tune out. She also has M&Ms in her office, peanut ones, and she lets me eat as many as I want. Miss Frost understands what's going on, but pretty much nobody else does. They don't understand how hard it is for me to follow directions when the electric pencil sharpener is going or the door keeps slamming or I'm worrying about whether someone is going to sneak up behind me and do something mean. They also don't understand how much I hate to be put on the spot, like when a teacher calls on me. As Mrs. Bean turns my way, I slide down in my seat. Even if she knows about my APD, it doesn't mean I'm safe. Sometimes, teachers think they're doing you a favor by treating you like you're no different from everyone else. The thing is, I am different. I slide down even farther in my seat, as low as I can go without falling out. All I care about is not getting called on. It's not that I can't do math. Actually, I'm pretty good at it. But standing up in front of the whole class makes me nervous. And when I get nervous, I forget what I'm doing and make mistakes. It turns out today's my lucky day, though, because the new kid shoots his hand straight up in the air like an arrow. He's wearing another white polo shirt, buttoned all the way up. Even the sleeves have been ironed flat. They're stiff and stick out funny, like little wings. His desk is covered with a bunch of junk, including some shiny new mechanical pencils, which Dylan keeps eyeballing with a klepto gleam. Mrs. Beam looks right at me. At least, I think she's looking at me, but then she calls on the new kid instead. That was close. Chapter 11. Ravi. Ravi? asks Mrs. Beam. Would you like to come up to the board? This is it. The moment I've been waiting for. Yes, ma'am, uh, Mrs. Beam, I say quickly, correcting myself. In my hurry to get up, my knee bangs against my desk, and all my school supplies fall to the floor. I don't want to miss my chance to show off my math skills, so I quickly bend down to pick up my things. My glasses start to slip down my nose, but before I can push them up, something hard hits my forehead. It's Joe Sylvester's head. Why has he done this? Bumped me with his rock-hard head. Can't he see I'm trying to collect my stuff? I rub my forehead as he rubs his. His giant foot is stepping on my name card. Bigfoot, I mutter under my breath. Dylan hears me and laughs. That's rich, he says. Bigfoot just sits there like a lump, but Dylan gets right down on the floor beside me and helps me pick up the rest of my things. I thank him for his help, then take a deep breath and straighten my back. I'm not going to allow anything to spoil this moment. This is my time to shine. I march up to the front of the class, take the blue marker from Mrs. Beam's hand, and face the whiteboard. I look at the first problem 23 times 13. I close my eyes, and the answer comes to me in a flash, two hundred and ninety-nine. But I'm not going to blurt it out and take a bow. I'm going to show Mrs. Beam something she has never seen before. What you are about to witness is pure magic, a secret handed down from ancient times, I say with confidence. There is complete silence in the classroom. I think Mrs. Beam's jaw has just dropped. Take your time, I warn myself. I write the two numbers, one below the other in blue marker. Then, with a red marker, I draw an arrow, connecting the last digits of both the numbers. 3 times 3 is 9, I say aloud, writing 9 in the ones place with a blue marker. Then, I pick up a green marker, and draw two arrows like a cross. 2 times 3 plus 3 times 1 is 9. I use blue again to write 9 in the tens place. I look at the class. No one is moving. My plan is working perfectly. I draw an orange arrow connecting the tens digits of both the numbers, and then pick up the blue marker again to write two in the hundreds place. The answer is 299, I proclaim, underlining the answer three times in purple, then replacing the cap on the marker with a satisfying click. Everyone is staring shell-shocked at the board. Amazed by what I have just done. Dylan Samarine greens and winks at me. I think he is impressed. If this performance has not impressed Mrs. Beam as well, nothing will. Ravi, she says very slowly, looking at all the arrows on the board. Your answer is correct, and your method is very colorful, but... But? What can she mean, but... We do things a little differently here," she goes on, giving me that pity look again. Next time, we don't need to see the arrows, just the numbers will do. The purple marker slips from my hand, falling to the floor. First, my manners are too Indian for her, and now my math? What will the next humiliation be, I wonder as I walk back to my desk. As if an answer to my question I suddenly feel my feet go out from under me. I have tripped over something, and when I fall, my glasses go skidding across the floor. "'What's the matter with you, Pud?' Dylan calls out. "'Why did you trip the new kid like that?' "'What have I done to deserve this? I haven't said a word to Bigfoot, or Joe, or Pudding, or whatever his name is. First he bumps my head, and now he trips me with his giant foot? "'Oh my goodness, are you hurt, Ravi?' Mrs. Beam asks, rushing over to where I'm lying on the floor. I want to, number one, show Joe Sylvester what I think of him and his giant foot. Number two, tell Mrs. Beam the only thing that is hurting me is my pride. Number three, shout at the top of my voice, my name is not Ravi. But here is what I do instead. Number one, bite my tongue. Number two, pick myself up. Number three, go and get my glasses. Appa's advice has gotten me nowhere. I am right back to where I started. The only difference is that now, thanks to Bigfoot, I have a bump on my forehead and a huge shoe print on my name card. Chapter 12. Joe. When Mrs. Beam calls on the new kid to come up to the board to do the first problem, he jumps out of his seat like a jack-in-the-box on a spring. His glasses slide down his nose, and all the stuff on his desk goes flying including his name card, which lands on the floor beside my desk. R-A-V-I. Mrs. Beam has been calling him Ravi, but when he introduced himself earlier, I'm pretty sure he said his name was Ravi, with the accent on the second syllable. As I reach down to pick up the card, he reaches for it at the same time, and we bump heads. Ouch. Dylan gets down on the floor to help Ravi pick up his stuff but I know what he's really up to. Quick as a flash, he puts one of those mechanical pencils down the front of his pants. When Ravi finally makes it to the front of the class to solve the problem, he draws a bunch of crazy-looking arrows on the board, each in a different color. I think it looks cool, but Mrs. Beam isn't impressed. He seems pretty bummed out after that. I don't see what the difference is, as long as he gets the right answer. Then... As if things weren't bad enough, Dylan sticks his foot out and trips him. That's a Dylan Samarin specialty, kicking a person when they're already down. He tries to pin it on me, but anyone with half a brain would see through that. How could I trip him from 10 feet away? My legs are long, but they're not that long. While Ravi goes to get his glasses and Mrs. Bean tries to decide whether she needs to call the school nurse, Dylan reaches back and swipes another one of Ravi's mechanical pencils. I feel bad for Ravi. I could definitely give him some pointers, like, for instance, not to leave his stuff lying around, and to watch out for the winking. Dylan always winks when he's up to no good. Maybe at lunch, Ravi and I will sit at the same table again. I wouldn't mind. His clothes are flat, and his lunchbox is weird. But other than that, he seems okay. Chapter 13, Ravi. After my failure to impress Mrs. Beam with my Vedic math and then the tripping episode, I can hardly wait for the morning to be over. At lunch, I will sit with Dylan Samreen and the other boys and come up with a plan for how to put Bigfoot in his place. One time at Vidya Mandir, a boy named Hassan stole a pair of leather batting gloves from my sports bag. My friends and I caught up with him after school and pushed him into a corner until he cried like a baby and gave back the gloves. Please take out your social studies textbooks and open them to page 10, Mrs. Beam tells us. Who would like to read the first paragraph to the class? Dylan starts waving his hand in the air, but Mrs. Beam chooses a boy called Keith Campbell instead. Most Native Americans were forced to leave New Jersey during the 1700s, Keith reads, Descendants of New Jersey, Native American people hid, or he stops before the next word. The word is assimilated, says Mrs. Beam. Class, please repeat after me. We all say it together, assimilated. Can anyone tell me what that word means? Mrs. Beam asks. Mine is the only hand that goes up. Yes, Ravi, says Mrs. Beam. I start to stand up, but catch myself in time. I have been awarded another chance to impress Mrs. Beam, and I am not going to give her any reason to find fault with me. Assimilate. To consume and incorporate nutrients into the body after digestion, I say confidently. Mrs. Beam smiles, but she has that pity look again. I'm sorry, Ravi, she says. I'm afraid I couldn't understand you. Because of your accent, you're going to need to speak more slowly in class if you want to be understood. My face burns. Is there nothing I can do right? But I refuse to give up. I swallow my pride and try again. Assimilate, I I say, slowly swirling my tongue around the words to make them sound more American. To consume and incorporate nutrients into the body after digestion. Thank you, Ravi, Mrs. Beam says, but the pity look is still there. In this context, however, The word assimilate means to try to fit in. Don't feel bad. It was a very good guess. A guess? Is that what she thinks? My answer was correct. I am 100% certain of that. I have a photographic memory. I can still see the definition from my fourth grade science notebook clearly in my mind. Mrs. Beam asks Keith Campbell to continue with his reading. Descendants of New Jersey Native American people hid or assimilated into white society. Very good, Keith, Mrs. Beam says, when he has finished reading. Then she looks around the room. Who would like to read the next paragraph? How about you, Joe? Bigfoot practically falls out of his chair. No way, he blurts. Excuse me, says Mrs. Beam. Her eyebrows are twitching like electrified caterpillars. Mrs. Arun would never have allowed a student to speak to her that way. I wonder what Bigfoot's punishment will be. But just then, the door opens, and a woman with white hair like a mop sticks her head inside. I'm here for Joe, she says. I'll keep him for the rest of the afternoon, if that's all right. That will be fine, says Mrs. Beam. Oh, and did you get my note about our new student? I think he could use a little help. Could this mop top be Miss Frost, I wonder? I did get your message. If you want, I can take him right now, says Mob Top. The two of us can get acquainted, and if it seems like a formal assessment is in order, we can deal with the paperwork later. What is she talking about? Ravi, says Mrs. Beam. Go with Miss Frost and Joe, please. I look up at the clock. 11.25. What about lunch? I ask. You can eat with Joe and me, says Miss Frost. Do you buy school lunch or bring it from home? From home, I say softly. I don't want to eat my lunch in the resource room with Mop Top and Bigfoot. I want to go to the lunchroom with my friend. Ravi, says Mrs. Bean, Miss Frost is here to help you. Please take your things and go with her. Hurry up now. I want to. Number one, tell her I don't need help. Number two, show her that she is the one who doesn't know the meaning of assimilation. Number three, Insult her hairy caterpillar eyebrows. But here's what I do instead. Number one, sigh loudly. Number two, put my things in my backpack. Number three, go and get my tiffin box. Chapter 14, Joe. Talk about perfect timing. I could kiss Miss Frost. Well, not really, but I am happy to see her. I'll keep Joe for the rest of the day, she says. Fine by me. Mrs. Beam asks Mrs. Frost to bring Ravi along too. He seems kind of mad about it. I was mad too when I first started going to see Miss Frost. I didn't like the way kids looked at me when she came to get me out of class. Now I'm used to it. I like Miss Frost, and I like being in the resource room, partly because it's quiet in there, and partly because of the M&Ms. Peanut M&Ms come in red, green, yellow, brown, orange, and blue. And they all taste exactly the same. I walk down the hall next to Miss Frost. Ravi walks a few feet behind us and doesn't say a word. Here we are, Ravi, says Miss Frost. When we get to her room, Miss Frost's voice sounds like a cartoon bird, chirpy and high. Her hair reminds me of those long strips of cloth they drag over your car when you go through the car wash. She holds the door open for us, but Ravi just stands there. Is something wrong, Ravi? Miss Frost asks. Ravi pushes up his glasses and rubs his nose. Then he puts his shoulders back and stands up really straight. My name is not Ravi, he says. It's pronounced Ravi. I'm not going to bother to tell you how to pronounce my surname, because you'll never be able to say it right. Miss Frost looks surprised. I'm very sorry if I mispronounced your name, she says. I certainly didn't mean to offend you. I don't belong here, he says, pushing his glasses up again. I speak perfect English. I was at the top of my class in India. My IQ is 135. I don't need special help. I'm not like him. He points his finger at me. I've been coming to Miss Frost's room since kindergarten. She was the one who figured out I have APD. My mom cried when she heard. My dad just got mad. He thinks APD is made up. He says doctors do that all the time to make money. Have a seat, Joe, and I'll be right with you, Miss Frost tells me. I sit down, dig a blue peanut M&M out of the big bowl in the middle of the table, and start sucking on it. Ravi. Ravi. I say to myself a few times, until it starts to feel natural. I bet I could learn how to say his last name too if I wanted to. But why should I bother? I have more important things to think about. Like, the fact that my dad called to say he's cutting his trip short and coming home early. I have a feeling it's because my mom told him about what happened in the cafeteria yesterday. Miss Frost takes Ravi over to the other side of the room to the listening lap. He sits down and puts on a pair of headphones, but his legs are jiggling around under the table, and I can tell he's still mad. For a minute, I thought maybe we could be friends, But now I know that's never going to happen. Whatever. After Miss Frost gets Ravi set up in the listening lab, she comes over and sits down beside me. Are you okay, Joe? She asks. I shrug and dig another peanut blue M&M out of the bowl. Blues are my favorite. Ravi was upset, she says. He's a long way from home and still adjusting. I'm sure he didn't mean to hurt your feelings. He didn't, I tell her. Everybody thinks I'm dumb. I'm used to it. Miss Frost looks sad. Did you know your mom stopped by to see me on her way to work this morning, Joe? She asks. I shake my head. Why can't my mother keep her nose out of my business? Can we talk about something else, please? I say. Like what? Asks Miss Frost. I try to think of something that has nothing to do with my mom or her new job. Did you know that if you stuck on a peanut M&M long enough and you're careful not to bite down, you can actually feel each one of the layers dissolving in your mouth? Miss Frost smiles. Go on, she tells me. Most people probably think there are only three layers in a peanut M&M, but that's not true. There are four. The first one is the hard colored part on the outside. Next, there's a thin white layer. That's the part most people don't know about. Then comes the chocolate, and when that's gone, if you've done it right, you end up with a nice, smooth peanut sitting at the edge of your tongue. Miss Frost is still smiling. That's a very interesting observation, Joe. She says, "It's also a sequence." Sequences are something Miss Frost and I have worked on a lot together. She says, "If I can think about things in order—first, next, then, and finally—it will help my brain stay organized." Pick your distractors, Miss Frost tells me. I get up and go over to a shelf filled with things like kitchen timers, wind-up toys, and music boxes. I choose an old Mickey Mouse alarm clock and a battery-operated snow globe with a Santa Claus wearing a Hawaiian shirt inside. As I carry them back to the table, I catch a whiff of something spicy. It must be Ravi's lunch. Ready? Miss Frost asks me. The alarm clock is ticking loudly. I set the snow globe on the table beside it and turn it on. A blizzard of glittering white snowflakes swirls around the plastic Santa Claus. Ready, I say. She hands me a copy of Sports Illustrated. First, find a page with no pictures on it. Next, circle all the words that begin with the letter T. She tells me, then copy the T words out on a piece of paper, and finally, fold the paper in half and bring it to me. Got it? Tick, tick, tick. I tell my brain to ignore the sound of the clock and the swirling flakes in the snow globe and focus on what Miss Frost just said. Find a page with no pictures. Circle the words that begin with T, I say, repeating the instructions. Then what, she asks. The Santa in the snow globe is holding a sign that says, Hollywood, here I come. That gets me thinking about even Evan and Ethan. I wonder how they're doing in California. That gets me thinking about the part in Bud not Buddy, where Bud tries to sneak onto a train with his best friend, Bugs, until he ends up getting left behind with some girl named Deeza, who wants to kiss him. I don't know what I'd do if some girl tried to kiss me. Probably bite her. Then what? Miss Frost asks. Crud. I totally lost my train of thought. I hate when that happens. Um, focus, Joe, Miss Frost tells me. Tick, tick, tick. I close my eyes and try hard to remember the rest of the instructions she gave me a minute ago. Copy all the T-words out and write them on a piece of paper, folded in half, and give it to you. Way to go, Joe, Miss Frost says, putting her hand up to give me a high five. Miss Frost doesn't know that high fives are corny. I look over at Ravi to see if he's watching, but luckily, he's busy looking at a dictionary. He asks again if he can go back to class, and this time, Miss Frost goes over to talk to him. I can't hear what they're saying, but I guess she gives in and decides to let him go, because she shoved his stuff in his backpack real fast and heads straight for the door. Fine by me. Miss Frost offers Ravi an M&M from the candy bowl, and even though there are plenty of other colors, wouldn't you know it? He reaches in and takes a blue one. What really ticks me off is that it's a double, two M&M's stuck together. Those are rare. He doesn't say goodbye. He doesn't eat the M&M either, just puts it in his pocket and heads for the door. Something's different about him. He's not mad anymore. He seems more sad. Not that I care how he feels. I'm glad he's leaving. Joe, says Miss Frost, I'll be back in a minute. Then we can get lunch. As soon as she's gone, I put down my pencil and dump the whole bowl of M&Ms out on the table. I go through them, one by one, looking for doubles, but there aren't any more. Doubles are rare, especially blue ones. I'm kicking myself. How could I have missed that? Chapter 15, Ravi. The eyes are windows to the world, Amma always says. When I was little, she would look into my eyes and tell me they were bright and sparkling, like my mind. That was before Mr. Batra discovered that I could hardly see. In kindergarten, I had a serious copying problem. I could never copy anything correctly from the board. While reading a book, I had to stick my face so close to the page that my teacher, Miss Venkit, suspected that I had some serious reading issues. When she called my mother in to tell her to get me assessed, Amma had cried. She couldn't stand that they were questioning my intelligence. It was Mr. Batra who figured out that my problem was with my eyesight. Now I wear glasses. The power of my lens is 13 and I can see the world clearly. Miss Frost gives me a book called Fun with Phonics and tells me to read along with the recording of the first story. There is a picture of letters dressed up in funny clothes on the cover. This is ridiculous. Does she think I'm a baby? I pretend to be listening to the story, but instead I turn down the volume and shift my headphones away from my ears so that I can hear what Miss Frost and Bigfoot are saying. He's talking to her about candy. I hear footsteps and people laughing out in the corridor. I recognize Dylan's voice. Last one in line gets a wedgie, he shouts. Why must I be stuck in here listening to baby stories when I could be racing off to eat lunch with my new friend, Dylan Samreen? I pull off my headphones and stand up. I've listened to the story, ma'am. Please, can I go now? I ask, But Miss Frost tells me to sit down and eat my lunch. Will I be trapped here forever like Bud Caldwell was trapped in the shed with the angry bees? I open my tiffin box and slowly unfold my napkin. How sad Emma would be if she could see me now. No wonder Bigfoot made such a fuss when Mrs. Beam called on him earlier to read aloud. He probably doesn't know how to read a word. I notice the fat red book sitting on a shelf nearby and realize what I must do i finished my vegetable biryani and a few quick bites. Miss Frost is still busy with Bigfoot, so she doesn't notice me get up and pull a heavy dictionary down from the shelf. I lay it on the table, open it up to the section marked A, then run my finger down the page. Askew, assess, yes, there it is, assimilate. I narrow my eyes and slowly read out the words. To take in, digest, incorporate. Ha! Huh. I knew it, I knew, I knew it, I whisper, smiling to myself and shaking my head from side to side. I will show Mrs. Bean this page, and she will have no choice but to admit defeat. I'll announce her mistake in front of the whole class, bump my fist, and take a bow. How sweet my victory will taste. In the meantime, I eavesdrop and find that Bigfoot is talking on and on about candy. He never says a word in class, but here he can't stop talking about chocolate and peanuts. Will it never end? I look at the dictionary one last time, just to be doubly sure, running my finger along under the words, this time very, very slowly. I want to make sure I have not missed anything. Take in, digest, incorporate. I bend my head closer. There is something else. To integrate. To fit in. My finger freezes. Can my eyes be fooling me? No thanks to Mr. Batra, I can see perfectly well. I read it again, to integrate, to fit in. I close the dictionary and quickly pull my social studies books out of my backpack, turning to chapter one. In this context, Mrs. Beam had said, I read the passage and my heart feels heavy. Consuming and incorporating nutrients has nothing to do with Native Americans in New Jersey in the 1700s. Just a minute ago, I had wanted to, number one, announce my victory, number two, pump my fist, number three, take a bow. But instead, this is how I feel, number one, embarrassed, number two, ashamed, number three, defeated. Miss Frost comes in and sits down next to me. I'm sorry to keep you waiting, she says. I know that you're eager to get back to class, but I thought it might be a good idea for us to have a little chat. What is there to talk about? The taste of victory is gone. All I want to do is dig a deep hole and hide my head in it forever. I'm here to help you in any way I can, says Miss Frost. We have lots of ESL materials here in the resource room. ESL, I say. English as a second language, she explains. Mrs. B mentioned that she and some of the children have been having difficulty understanding you because of your accent. I hang my head. English is not my second language, it is my first. My English is much better than my Tamil. Moptop doesn't even know me, and now she is criticizing the way I speak? I can only imagine how difficult this must be for you, she tells me. A new school, in a new country? Maybe it would help to speak with Mr. Garfinkel, our guidance counselor. He's very easy to talk to. I feel like I am suffocating. Now I'm in need of some kind of counseling, too. Please, I whisper, can I just go back to my classroom? Of course, she says and pats my hand. Mrs. Beam should be back in her classroom by now. I'm sure she won't mind if you sit quietly and read until the others come back from lunch. I nod my head, grateful that my torture is finally coming to an end. Then I quickly stuff my tiffin box and social studies book back in my backpack before Miss Frost can change her mind about letting me go. Bigfoot is looking at a magazine and doesn't even look up as I walk past. Would you like an M&M for the road? Miss Frost asks me, holding out a big bowl full of colored candies. Amma doesn't like me to eat sweets, but I don't want to be rude. So I take a candy, a blue one, and put it in my pocket as I prepare myself for the long walk back. Miss Frost and I walked down the corridor together. When we reach room 506, she turns to me. How about we meet again next week, she says. Once you've had a bit more time to settle in, I reach to open the door, but Miss Frost puts her hand on my shoulder. Before you go, can I tell you something? I think you've assumed something about Joe that isn't true. You and he could easily be friends. I shake my head no. Why should I be his friend after what he did to me? This morning in class, he tripped me on purpose with his foot and nearly broke my glasses, I say. That doesn't sound like the Joe I know, says Miss Frost. Dylan saw him do it, I tell her. He told me. Miss Frost bites her lip, then says, I wasn't there, but if he tripped you, he owes you an apology. And you owe him an apology as well, for implying that he might be not as smart as you are. Just because Joe needs help doesn't mean he isn't bright. You shouldn't assume things about a person before you know who they really are. People are making assumptions about me, too, I point out. They think I can't speak English or do math, but that's not true. Miss Frost nods her head. You see, she says, assumptions are often wrong. She tells me to remember that. Chapter 16, Joe. When Miss Frost comes back to the resource room, she's carrying a tray with three hamburgers on it, one for her and two for me. Did anything happen in class this morning that I should know about, Jo? She asks, tearing open a package of ketchup with her teeth and carefully squeezing a squiggly red line onto the top half of her bun. I'm already done with my first hamburger and am about to start in on the second. I should have asked for three. I spazzed out a little when Mrs. Beam asked me to read. I say, did you tell her about my APD? Miss Frost nods. I reach for a carton of chocolate milk and try to open the spout, but the paper keeps ripping. Miss Frost takes it from me and uses her fingernail to pull open the milk. Then she hands it back. I was wondering if anything happened with Ravi this class, she says. It's Ravi, I say, and Dylan tripped him right after he did some crazy-looking math problem on the board. Is that what you mean? He seems to think that you were the one who tripped him. I shake my head. I guess maybe he's not as smart as he thinks he is, I say. After school gets out, my mom is sitting in the car waiting for me. We go through the same routine as the day before. She tries to convince me to let her give me a ride home, and I tell her I'd rather walk. I walk to school in the morning too. I don't get mad that often, but when I do, I always stay mad for a while. I have a couple of bucks in my pocket so I stop at the mini-mart on the corner to buy a snack. I had been planning to get a bagel and cream cheese, but instead, I decide to buy a king-sized bag of peanut M&Ms. Ever since I saw Ravi take that double blue one out of the bowl, it's been bugging me that I didn't find it first. I pay for the M&Ms and rip open the pack. Out of 22, there are five blues, but no doubles. I eat them slowly, sucking off the layers trying to make them last the whole way home. When I finally walk in the door, Mimi comes running. She rolls over on her back, and I give her a good belly scratch. Mom's out in the kitchen, and from the smell of things, I'm pretty sure she's making pork roast and scalloped potatoes. It's going to be hard to stay mad at her if she keeps this up. Joey, Mom calls. Is that you? Yeah, I call back. She comes out of the kitchen, drying her hands on a dish towel. Hungry? she asks. My head tells me to go upstairs, but my stomach tells me where there's pork roast and scalloped potatoes, there might be apple crisp too. I'm starving, I say. Dinner won't be ready for another hour, but I just took a crisp out of the oven. You want some? Boy, do I. But between last night with the meatloaf and now this, I don't want her to think I'm a pushover. I'm still mad at you, I tell her. I know, she says. I follow her out into the kitchen, where she dishes up a big bowl of warm apple crisp. Ice cream, she asks. I nod, and she puts a scoop of vanilla on top of the crisp. Perfect. I take a bite and close my eyes, letting the taste explode in my mouth like fireworks. Are you ever going to forgive me, she asks. Eventually, I tell her. She gets busy washing lettuce. I'm glad she doesn't ask me about my day. I keep thinking about what Ravi said to me, and the way he pointed his finger at me. Even apple crisp can't take the edge off that. More? asks mom. No thanks, I say, handing her the empty bowl. I'm good.